Working Radio. We are live, kind of, live to me, but it will be recorded when you download this as a podcast. Uh, we are in the Twerking Radio studio, and uh, yet another Monday is upon us. I've tried to get on a schedule, so uh, yeah, we're going to start doing the shows on Monday and posting them hopefully every Tuesday. I'm not going to hold myself to that strictly, but that, that's what I'm attempting here. Anyway, today in the studio, we have a very special guest, Mr. Austin Downey. Hi, Josh. It's so nice to be here. How are you? I'm good. It's so nice to have you here. It's wonderful to be here on a Monday on your new schedule. Um, I want to thank you for having me here and for giving me a chance to uh, come and visit you uh, using my real name. You know, um, I've DJed a lot in back rooms, drug dens, things of that nature. I, I want to get into your whole DJ history, and I, I was actually going to ask you during that song, but I, I did not ask you what your DJ name had been through the years and if it had changed anything like that. Well, you see, I was born Austin Wiener, but you know he kind of embarrasses us, so I, I changed it to Austin Downey you know, so I could play back rooms. You legally changed it? <laughs> yes, I did. Okay. I'm half Gentile. And what's the other half? Gentile. <laughs> Um, but did you always go by Austin Downey as your DJ name? Yes, I did. Um, I really would have liked to have a, a cute DJ name, but I never could uh, think of one that worked. You know, it just seemed too contrived. So, you know, I would look at people like Danny Tenegli or Frankie Knuckles, and they can use their real name. I thought, well, no sense in making up one. I mean, you know what I mean? Yeah. Junior Vasquez made up probably the ultimate DJ name, <laughs> and after that, what am I going to make up? <laughs> yeah, I always think of him as making up uh, making up a name that sounds like a real name, but really his name is like Alan Dershowitz, right? No, it's something, It's some, I know it's not Alan Dershowitz, it's something not Latin though, right? Oh, no, not at all. And so I feel like if you really can't top that for a made-up DJ name. And uh, at the time, you know, it was just house music was a little different, a little more earthy, and people were using their real names. So tell, tell us about your Hey Dave DJing, because I know it goes back to the, early to mid-90s, right? It was really before my time in the city, but I know all the places you've DJed in, very well known, uh, back to Limelight, Crowbar, and yeah, tell me more. Well, um, when I was about uh, 22, 23, you know, I started um, collecting music because I had been work. I'd been going to school during the day and working in clubs. And after working in clubs for a while, I stopped going to school. You know, it happens. And um, uh, so I was just drawn to the whole DJ thing. I had always had music in my life, uh, playing, you know, I played drums all th throughout my childhood and everything. But when I first saw like a DJ in a real club playing music that just took you somewhere, I was, I was blown away. So, uh, which incidentally was over here on 2nd Street and Avenue C, it used to be a club called The World. And Frankie Knuckles was the DJ on Saturday nights. I was 18 years old, and I was a busboy. Needless to say, not many bottles and got picked up. <laughs> you know, we would just kind of put our brooms off to the corner and go dance all night. And the club really didn't care because it was a mess. So um, that kind of started getting me into collecting uh, house records, disco records, and everything else. And records, you know, heavy plastic records which are wonderful. But, uh, you know, at the time, it was fun to go record shopping and everything. So I got a lucky break, um, started 
you know, getting hired as a guest DJ at places like Pyramid. And then uh, a, pla a place called The Crowbar opened up on 10th and B, owned by Bob Ponderelli, Bob and Steven, who then went on to open Barracuda and Elmo, and they have something uptown now, and I can't recall. I have very sad, unfortunate news to tell you that Steven passed away last night, or two nights ago, yeah. Uh, I knew Bob, I know Bob Pontarelli more, more than Steven, but yeah. Oh, that's so sad, oh boy. Gee, that's really a shame. Sorry to drop that to you on the air, but going back, I mean, I was getting texts last night when I was out, uh, and it's a loss for the community. I didn't even realize that he was one of the partners in Crowbar. Crowbar, again, was before my time. It was on 10th and B. But uh, I know Bob. I know Bob opened industry now, yeah, in Hell's Kitchen. So I guess they've been instrumental in gay nightlife and clubs for 20-something years. Oh, yeah, they, they were very instrumental because they, you know, Bob had been at the American Ballet Theater, and I really don't know what possessed them to open this little uh, uh, trap <laughs> on, on East 10th Street. But it was a lovely little room, just painted black, uh, with a DJ booth, little disco ball, and a little stage. And they didn't quite know what they would do with it, so they opened their doors to everyone, you know. And they were very, very supportive of young, young talent. And so, you know, if you look back at, for example, the ad that you found, <laughs> uh, curbside, you found uh, this old ad from, was it HX or Next? It was HX. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Um, you know, um, everybody, everybody at that time went through that place and DJed there. Gant Johnson, Steve Travolta, and everybody, uh, Honey, um, I can't even, the Ted Patterson, and many, many more that I'm not even thinking about. And um, they, they, they had a lot of patience. That place didn't really have customers probably for about six months at least. There was no such thing as a big grand opening where everybody comes. Uh, you know, th that place found its audience. Yeah. And they let their people build. You know, after about six months, I was on a Thursday and then later switched to Saturdays. After about six months, I was like, Bob, you sure you want me here? Because I don't know. No, just keep playing. Just keep playing. It's going to build. It's going to do its own thing. And they were right. You know, and they built a place where a lot of people really uh, not only had a great time and sustained a really great time because it was open for years, but they, they really launched their career. Well, I'm going to stop you there and ask you to play a song maybe from that era for fear that, you know, last Monday also, a little brain dead from the weekend, as I'm sure you could relate. And uh, with Sammy Joe, it turns a bit into an NPR episode rather than a, <laughs> a music radio with talking between the songs, which is not a bad thing. I'm actually on the edge of my seat waiting to hear the, the rest of the story about Crowbar and the world and how your DJ career evolved. But do you want to play something maybe from back then now? Oh, yes, I'd be happy to. Um, <laughs> well, yes, thank you. <laughs> it's great to be on the Lawrence Welk Show. <laughs> um, yeah, this is um, kind of a, you know, I think it's, um, it's incredible that a lot of younger people today are getting into 90s house, 90s house, 90s house, 90s house. You hear about it, it's great. And there's a lot of stuff that you don't really hear every day. There's stuff that did, you know, you hear it, uh, but there's a lot of forgotten stuff, you know. So if I kind of, like, think back to the world and Crowbar and all these other places, like very early 90s, late 80s, this little gem comes to mind. Te quiero, te quiero, te quiero, te quiero. 
That was Notice Me by Sandy CNC Music Factory Remix from 1989. Dedicated to Steven. That's for you, baby. And so that song, tell tell us tell us about the reaction to that song or your your memories of that song and what it brings you back to when you hear it. Um when I hear this, that, or any of the CNC remixes of that time and a lot of music from that time, you just think of people dancing ecstatically. I mean, it's sexy, but it's dignified, it's musical, it's just, I mean, people just went crazy. They went nuts. It sounded great on a really good sound system. So I was asking, I, I get very eager about my line of questioning, and I began to ask Austin during the song about the sound system at Crowbar uh, and and the song itself, you know, obviously, CNC Music Factory sort of, they broke through, certainly, to the mainstream. I don't know if they were the first house group to do it, but uh, as someone who was not from that time period growing up, when the cassette single and then the CD single hit, you know, and you had Technotronic, CNC Music Factory, I mean, these, these were the top 40 bands, so to speak, that I was growing up with hearing on Long Island. Yeah, it, it really was a wonderful time because you had it in the clubs and you had a sort of a somewhat different version of it on the radio, but it was all good. You know, it was all really true to what what the music was supposed to be. Um, Clavillis and Cole, definitely one of the first to break through, but then, you know, they always had these outrageous club versions, dubs, and unreleased stuff, you know, for the clubs. So they never left the clubs, you know, to pursue Top 40. They just happened to have both. Um, sound system at Crowbar was horrible. Girl. <laughs> Awful. <laughs> the worst. And it was it was the perfect place to learn your craft and just make the best of it. And nobody cared. I mean, the, they would just come and, and dance all night. They don't, listen. I would do, let's say, a Saturday with Ted Patterson. And it would get so hot in there that we would have to leave the booth, go across the floor to the speaker, and change the bulb. It was like, I don't know if it was fuses, the old tubes and whatnot. We'd see it kind of lighting up on fire, then it would die. And, you know, and the record was playing, so we couldn't loop anything. <laughs> and we'd just have to cut through the crowd and change the bulb. Well, they got used to us coming out to change the bulb, so they'd get out of our way. Did you have, did you have neighbor issues as you have now in the East Village? I mean, I know it was not as gentrified then, and you still had a lot of homelessness and drug use and violence in Alphabet City. I <laughs> said that was just inside. No, there was absolutely no violence. There was, uh, if anybody did what they did, they certainly did it discreetly. And we had n absolutely no neighbor issues except for one uh, person towards the end who lived upstairs in the same building. Mind you, she was six floors up, and the people two and three floors up could care less. So no, we really didn't disturb anybody. It, it was it was a great place to be at a good at a great time. I mean, I'll, I'll say, I, I DJing now in New York City, I think it's rare to actually find a venue that doesn't have noise complaints from neighbors. That's probably more so in Manhattan than Brooklyn, and that's probably just a symbol of the changing times, if you will. I suppose, I don't know. Well, you know, I, 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 th I think it's a bit disappointing. Um, nobody wants to be a nuisance to their neighbors. At the same time, I do think that because of gentrification, I think the culture has changed. You have a lot of people moving to the city who who believe that quality of life means that you never, ever have to hear anybody else living their life. That's not true. 
you should, you know what I mean? You have the right to complain when people are a nuisance. But a nuisance is not the same as other people just living their life. You know, you're going to hear music. You're going to hear people walking. And that's part of life. I mean, deal with it. Well, you need to qualify this segment of the show because, as I learned earlier today, Austin has continued DJing and producing music, but actually has a full-time job. I'd say day job, but it's still an evening-type job. Working for 311, overseeing dispatch and managing people who are answering your phone calls. If you don't live in New York City, 311 is the phone number you call for uh, government, non-emergency government services. So in a way, you could say I, I, I joined the other side. <laughs> yeah, these people call, and they're like, there's this club downstairs called Eastern Block, and it's really noisy, and then you tell your dispatchers to tell the people to shut the fuck up. Obviously, you can't, you can't say that, but do you ever feel like that when people call saying, there is a police siren outside my window. Well, you know, I think y you're not really human if you don't hear kind of a, a, an absurd uh, call and not think twice about it. But at the same time, you know, we're tasked with serving the public, and our job is to, ba you know, basically do what we have to do to alert the local precinct, and the local precinct handles it as they see fit. Um, you know, I can't really get into much detail, but, you know, if a club or a bar becomes a true nuisance, and there are some, um, they know what to do. Uh, it's, you know, I, I, I can't really speak for this guy. I better shut up. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, listen, we treat everybody nicely who calls. We serve the customers as we are tasked to do. But it is interesting being on that side of it, you know. And it's interesting hearing both sides of it. You know, when somebody calls and they, I, I can't hear them talk because the club is louder than they are, then that could be a problem. I wouldn't want to live by that either. But, you know, people have to get along. Compromise. I'm tempted to fast forward and ask you how you transitioned from nightlife to evening work, but uh, maybe I'll play a song before before we get before we get to that. Uh, it was a song, you know. Uh, the amazing thing about you coming over and doing the show is that not only I get to learn about new music, but everybody who's listening to this gets to learn about music from back then. And this song I'm going to play, you know, Andy Reynolds. Oh, work, Andy. Yeah. He shares music from time to time, maybe not necessarily the MP3s themselves, but he'll tip you off to some gem that you would never know about otherwise. And I did a bitch track party uh, with Nita over a year ago, two years ago, and uh, and he said, well, you have to get Miss Tina. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I didn't know what that was. I had to go and find the vinyl, which nowadays with the internet was not super hard. And surprisingly, Bill Coleman, another old school New York DJ, uh, was, on the, was on the label as doing production or one of the remixes also. Uh, they both gagged that I actually went out and, and got the vinyl. So th this is my contribution to that time period of the show.
That was Miss Tina. That was Miss Tina. Uh, that probably came out around 1995 as well. I am not so good with doing my homework when it comes to dates. Do you have anything you want to add about that song or that era? Fierce. <laughs> uh, so as, pro as promised, we we're going to get back to how Austin went from uh, DJ Nightlife, Nightlife Queen to 311 Queen. 311 Queen. When did you transition out of DJing? Oh, and then we're going to go back to, we're going to go through the, the DJ years and what you've been up to since then. But did it, did it cut to a point where you just were over it or something closed and it was done for you? Uh, and also we're going to tell us about your days living in the East Village because you said you lived right around the, the block from the world on 2nd and C and now you live in Queens. So I want to hear sort of how that transition happened with the DJing and the moving. Okay, well, long story short, because you know, we could be here for days. Um, yeah, I was probably, I was in the East Village probably until about 2000, right? So if you move forward through the Crowbar years, oh, and P.S., I have to mention Lena and her Tuesday nights at Crowbar because they were legendary, and I'd forgotten about that before, and it should kill me. So, uh, who, by the way, we were roommates for a long time. Shut the fuck up. I want... I want every Lena's, that's what we're going to talk about during the next song. But, you know, she's a very good friend of mine, and I, I can't wait to hear Lena's stories. But, yeah, keep going about. Was, was that on 2nd and C that you guys lived together? That was 3rd uh, and B. Yeah, I just kind of made the rounds from one non-abandoned building to another. <laughs> At the time, you know, half the block would be burned out, and the other half was people. <laughs> people looking out the window. Um, yeah, so... You know, basically, long story short, you know, went through the crowbar years, and then at the time I was also working at HX Magazine for Matthew Bank and Mark Berkeley. Mark Berkeley, rest in peace. He's no longer here. Um, I guess he's he'll, he's up there, and he'll say hi to Stephen. You know, and they'll read each other as they used to do. Um, yes. Yeah, so now, where was I? <laughs> uh, been a long life. Um, oh yeah, so eventually, you know, at the same time I was working for HX Magazine, and that was such a wonderful experience. I mean, I was there for about 10 years. And um, so I, little by little, I'd started playing uh, at Mark's parties, at Mark Berkeley's parties, at Limelight, Tunnel, and Palladium, all three. He kind of did like all the gay nights at, at all three places. And um, that was a wonderful experience too. You know, at the time, these big clubs would contract out promoters like Mark, and they in turn would contract out people to you know fill the few rooms that they were responsible for. But they were very, very supportive of young talent. Again, Mark it was the type of promoter who would never tell you how to DJ, ever, or even suggest what you should do. He would look at you and say, "I like what you do." You, you know. I think you can add, and he'd put you in a place where he thought you would do well, rather than put you in X and Y and tell you to do that. You know what I mean? And that was just magical, really, because we all, he had a whole stable of DJs, stable. Because <laughs> 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 we were some horses, honey. 
And but everybody was kind of put where they belong, and it was really really nice, you know. So anyway, long story short, um, after that, uh, you know, a lot of things closed. Uh, Limelight Tunnel and Palladium were all owned by the same person. Which of those three was your favorite? Um, I would have to say, well, you know, they were all so different. Like, Tunnel came first, actually, because Mark had a room in back. Not a back room, but a room in back. Um, that was very, uh, very wooden. It was all wooden type of room with a, with a really good sound system. And a lot of DJs played up in there at the time. Because the main floor was very, very straight, but not in a good way. And, uh, so that was the first on Saturday nights, and that was really awesome. That probably was my favorite. But Limelight lasted longer. And um, Palladium was more like, he did it every Sunday, but I would come in every few months and play it like on a holiday or like a Sunday, you know. And, and that was, they were all unique, put it that way. I don't know if I could pick. But Tunnel was probably the best to just do every week. Um, anyway, you know, those clubs were all, had the same ownership, same management. They all got in a heap of trouble. Uh, I'm sure you're familiar with like the Peter Gation story and the Michael Alex story and all that. Yes, yeah, I mean that that that's the part that's also made into the pop culture. Obviously, after the Michael Alec murder became a tabloid sensation, later turned into a film with Macaulay Culkin. I mean, I've gone back, I've read the books and watched the documentaries, but I think you hear more about that and Limelight, and I know more about that than I know about maybe Club USA, Palladium. I know where Palladium is because it's a dormitory now. But, you know, I, d I don't know very much that went on there because it was all eclipsed by that news story, and that's what people sort of think of. Of course, I'm very friendly with Desi and Walt and people that were in that scene as well, uh, who I have gathered stories from and who hopefully will be on the show also. But I don't know so much about Tunnel apart from the times I had gone there, which were very few and very late, late, later on when it was around. Yeah, it was not the early days of Tunnel. Well, you know, I, I thought, think, think looking back on it, I think it's a very interesting time in, in club history because before then, as far as I know, and m maybe I'm wrong, when, when a club would close, it kind of like had collapsed under its own weight. You know what I mean? Maybe it was just done or people had, you know. But this kind of started the whole debate about what is the club owner responsible for? How, f how far, how much, how responsible is he for what goes on inside the club? And does that make, if you turn a blind eye, are you an accomplice? I mean, you know, they had a million drug investigations of, of all three clubs. And to me, the question came down to, well, how much do you hold the owner of the club responsible? Do you hold the owner of Macy's responsible if people are cruising in the bathroom and doing drugs? You know what I mean? Do you hold Yankee Stadium responsible? Somebody smoking pot over in the uh, mezzanine. So, and do you close it down and throw them out so that, that's a debate, and what constitutes a nuisance, you know. So, th you know, that got a lot of play, and it set the stage for a lot of places being closed down. Crowbar got shut down, not for drugs, not for lack of um, lack of customers, that's for sure, but for the whole cabaret license thing, which they used at the D administration, uh, used to as an excuse to basically close things down. The Giuliani administration. Yes, the Giuliani administration. Uh, the Giuliani administration had a problem with nightlife, and I feel that they, rather than work with it, as the subsequent administration has been a lot better at uh, working with it, uh, Giuliani just kind of wanted to close everything down. I mean, it was a sweep. In, in 1997, they closed Cake, which was like, you know, real big, with Mistress Formica. That was like her baby, as far as I remember. And that sort of uh, filled the rock and roll void. 
and crowbar filled like the house music void. And within a week, we were gone. P uh, pyramid, take, crowbar, you name it, everything just got shut down. Why? Because people had the gall to dance to the music there. And it was very disheartening, you know. Um, so after that, I kept on with the Chelsea clubs and yada, 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 and working at the magazine. And, you know, at, at one point, it just, uh, you know, it started to become like a, a burnout kind of process because then Tunnel, you know, that was taken over and Limelight closed and, you know, Palladium was no longer. And I just, you know, it was kind of like... We're going to jump into a, a song before before Austin gets into the 2000 to 2011 scene. Yeah, uh, the Giuliani uh, situation was just horrendous. So let's jump back time a little bit um, back to back to the early uh, 90s another one you don't hear every day uh, this was huge at the sound factory Frankie Knuckles would play it every Sunday morning Frankie left that club and Junior took over he would play it every Sunday morning it's uh, a cl very very classic but rarely heard uh, masters at work mix of Debbie Gibson believe it or not Debbie Gibson from my hometown on Long Island Merrick same theater group and everything. It always comes full circle with Debbie. It comes full circle. Yes, it does. Uh, this was back in the days when, you know, you'd hire someone to do a remix and they would do like a fierce dub on side B of the record. Well, this was that fierce dub.
Debbie Gibson voice, in case you're waiting for it. That's her part. a bitch I'll fuck your ass up talking that shit don't step to me like that hold up sit down baby let me tell you something this is the 90s and the only one that owns this pussy is me the pussy's mine that's right damn it and I can give it to anyone I choose the pussy's mine give it to another man or another woman so shut the fuck up the pussy's mine not yours but mine the pussy's mine not yours so check Something. 
see, I hear you talking all that shit. Oh, uh-huh, right. <laughs> so you want to be hard and shit. Well, you make me come real quick when you eat my shit. But you know, a woman needs more than just a hard dick. So just admit it. Baby, you do eat the pussy. The pussy. So check it. It's my, it's my, it's my, it's my, it's my. Not yours, but mine. It's my, it's my, it's my, it's my, it's my, it's my pussy. The pussy's mine. another crowbar classic uh austin is uh telling about his time when he was roommates with my good friend and an another fellow dj lena they used to live together he's saying for three years yeah for about three years lena was a pleasure a joy and just a, a, a wonderful person to be around as you know um boy do we kiki with the music and everything around the house you, i mean you really you couldn't sit down I, I could only imagine, you know, she's out on Fire Island now for half the year or more. I mean, well, I just texted her and told her you were here, so we're waiting. Oh, she wrote back. Maybe I shouldn't read this on the radio. <laughs> she's just telling me I'm too much. She calls me Sparbish Walters, as I was telling you, because I'm always getting the story, and I'm sure she knows I'm trying to get the story on her. But uh, this, this, that, that song I just played uh, to follow up, that Debbie Gibson dubbed, that you played uh, was one from Crowbar that I had I'd found on YouTube. As many people had seen, Lena had performed that back when she was performing more there. And uh, that's a B-side to a, uh, it's a Jamie Principal track, but it's, it's a remix. The A-side has the Junior Vasquez remixes on it. I think we were talking a bit about Junior also in Sound Factory when we sort of cut away to... Uh, that Sound Factory track you played, right? Yes, we were talking about it. And, uh, you know, it was just one of those once-in-a-lifetime type of clubs with amazing sound, uh, music that you really couldn't hear anywhere else, and people would just come to enjoy themselves. That, that, that was really it. You could get dressed up and be seen, or you could just come and rag. You know, like it was just... You had to want to be there. It wasn't the type of place that people wander into, like, you know, and buy a bottle and a table and everything else and all this other nonsense. You would have to make a point of either staying up all night <laughs> or getting up Sunday morning and go, like church. And that's what it was. This is pre-Giuliani. Give us a time frame of uh, Sound Factory, the heyday, and, and the main floor DJs. I know you said Junior was one of the, the big ones that ended up coming in there. Uh, yes, they opened in 89, and... It was Junior's club, basically. He left for about a year and a half. 
and Frankie came in from 90 through 91, if I, uh, through all of 91, if I remember correctly, and then Junior came back. Um, I think it was pretty telling at the time, even though there's always a little club drama and speculation about what happened, why this one left, and why that. You really didn't hear, maybe you heard a question or two about it, but you didn't hear a lot of talk about it. People minded their business, you know. And um, luckily, a lot of people my age got to experience both both of them on a Sunday morning. And it was just, I mean, it was incredible. What, what time are we talking about when you say Sunday morning? And was it really Giuliani that put this 4 a.m. cap on nightlife with the cabaret licensing and stuff? Well, uh, yes. Giuliani, Giuliani did, did uh, enforce the ancient and obsolete cabaret laws. But Sound Factory didn't, I mean, they, you know, you would get there, they would open their doors at three. And you would go maybe four or five, you know, and stay until 11 or 12. But they didn't serve. That's three or four a.m. to 11 or 12 noon, correct? Yes. <laughs> yes, in <laughs> fact. Uh, Post-meridian, uh, uh, Greenwich Mean Time. Um, but they also didn't serve alcohol. So they kind of flew under the radar, I think, for, for a long time. And, you know, to this day, nobody really knows what they closed in 95. Um, spring of 95. Not really under a big heavy cloud of any scandal. Uh, it's just one day they were gone. And so I'm not, I'm not even sure why. They weren't in, in, in any particular trouble. I know that much. But they, maybe they figured they couldn't carry on like that. Um, but yeah, very interesting. You had no alcohol, so you know what that means. Um, means a very interesting mix of people who uh, pleasure themselves discreetly <laughs> and self-medicate. Um, but it was discreet. I mean, again, it was, you know, people kind of were adults about it and did their own thing. And they really can't, listen, you can stay home and get high. You don't have to go there. So if you were there, it's because you wanted to be there and be with the people and hear the music. Now, I think Sound Factory predates Twilo and Vinyl, correct? Uh, yes. Sound Factory, after it closed, became Twilo. And Vinyl, oh boy, you got me. I think they opened, well, they opened in like the mid-90s downtown, and I, I can't remember exactly when. Because that's when I think you start hearing about uh, owners and managers piling. Like, you ever hear the story about Twilo people? They would, they would pile up the bodies in like the, the closet or, or on the side and call a private ambulance because they didn't want it to go down on official city record that they were having this many overdoses and stuff. Again, this is... I didn't. I never got to experience those venues, but I don't know if nightlife took a darker turn or there was more of a crackdown, and the reports of ambulances coming to a club would have then affected it. But that was certainly a New York City urban legend, if not truth, that I certainly have heard time and again that the bodies they didn't want people to know that people were using too many drugs and it wasn't being policed or it was becoming more of a drug scene. Um, I think both. Both. Yes, it, it is. It was basically true. Um, as far as I know, I don't know how many bodies were piled up, but in a sense that that story was kind of true. I think that nightlife did take a dark turn, and it, you know that and the crackdown. It was both. Um, I, I'll say this though, you know, uh, in in terms of Twilo and places like that, they none of them really got in trouble for their for their gay nights. And when I say gay, I mean it was basically gay, but everybody was welcome. What happens over time, though, is, you know, Twyla had a liquor license. They had bills to pay, right? So I'm just speculating that, you know, they were open Friday night, as opposed to being open Sunday morning. 
where that's your core audience. They were open all weekend. They had a lot of young people in there, like really young, on Friday nights. And when you start having college kids overdosing, and uh, it makes the newspapers. You know, so they, they, I hate to say it, but a lot of club uh, owners brought this situation on themselves by welcoming people who were too young to do that many drugs and not and act like adults. And, you know, they're young, and they, they OD, and crazy stuff started happening. And, yeah, there were stories, which I believe, I guess I don't have proof, but I, I do believe that they, I'm sure they avoided the, the bad publicity and would call an ambulance or have the friends take them out or who knows what. But I will say this. Um, everything was going on at the gay parties, too, but they never, you know, those they tended to be a little more mature. And so you started getting a lot of problems and a lot of bad publicity when the college kids who were too young to be there and drink alcohol, much less be there and overdose on drugs. And that's really when things fell apart. Yeah, I mean, you still have that happening today. It's not even the gay clubs. It's that stretch on West 26th Street. I mean, the past few years, it's just been crackdown after this girl disappears in East New York. I think that was the really the, the most visible one. But we're going to switch gears musically. We're gonna go uh, into now. We're gonna we could talk about the hiatus from 2000 2010. But what are you listening to now? I, I want to hear it, and I want you to talk about it. Okay, Josh. Well, before we switch gears, I have one other B side dub since we're on the theme of dubs and B sides. Uh, this was the artist is called Sapphire. She was a freestyle artist, and around 1991, David Morales did this house dub, which has just become legendary. So, um, this is just legend. Let me, it will speak for itself.
Austin is going crazy right now for this.
minutes and we were living for that whole thing. Austin was really living for that whole thing. Just here at sitting on my couch, busting a moon. I wore a group in the car. Tell us, tell us about that track. Uh, it's 1991, David Morales dub, Red Zone dub, named after club that he used to, you're welcome. Uh, named after this club that he played at called the Red Zone for many years. Uh, it's just a fabulous example of that ecstatic kind of deep, chunky, just lovely house sound. You know, it's just, uh, like I said, it speaks for itself. And you were talking to samples and Marshall Jefferson. You could hear a ton of samples, right? Tons of samples. I mean, we used to crack up on the dance floor because it's like Donna Summer and, and Lolita's voice and every obvious sample you could possibly think of, cartoon sound effects, um, with no rhyme or reason, really, except to just turn you out. Yeah, I was asking Austin also about David Morales, talking about all these residencies in the 90s, and he was saying David never had a, a notable residency at a prominent club that did a gay net or anything like that. And you always see a lot more David doing production work than DJing, but Austin had the good fortune to see David DJ and says it was indeed legendary. The man is legend. She, she, she's got two arms, and it sounds like he's got ten. Yeah, uh, and this is this is this is before any computer type Ableton, anything. I mean, he he had all the turntables going at once. I'm sure. I mean, it, the man was just you know, you know, and it wasn't even to show off. It was just like he would work you. The man, I mean, it's just an incredible talent, and that's why he's an honorary queen. <laughs> We're gonna switch gears. I was just telling Austin during that song about David Mancuso's um, the loft, which I have also had the good fortune to go to uh, the past few times. David loves to spin these dubs. Uh, th th that was a dub, a B-side of a record. And I was saying, David loves to spin these dub versions of songs you haven't heard, you never will hear again, you can't find anywhere. Just totally mind-blowing. Uh, and I was talking with a friend also who goes to that party. This track I'm going to play, it's a new track. It's actually new on DFA Records, you know, which was the vehicle for James Murphy and LCD Sound System, I believe. Don't quote me on that. Uh, but... <laughs> Unquote. Quote. It's uh it's not house music and we're gonna we're gonna try to find out what Austin listens to when it isn't house music if such a thing exists. This is uh this is a really, really, really new track called Invisible Conga People by Invisible Conga People, excuse me. Uh it's called In a Hole and 
It's really slow and trippy. Get your ketamine.
We are back, bringing you up to contemporary tripped out music, courtesy of DFA Records. Oh, that was just gorgeous. And might I say, I do miss that tempo on a dance floor. And uh, we need to sort of, let's do what we can do to bring it back, shall we? I would love to hear, I mean, I, I don't know how much stuff you packed, but I would love to hear something from your collection at that tempo. I mean, ag again, this is something, as I said, David Mancuso will play Tom Tom Club, uh, Genius of Love, which is a similar tempo, maybe a little faster. And people rush the dance floor. Now, now you don't really get something if in contemporary music and going out nowadays, unless it's crunk, hip-hop, which is so somewhat akin to that. Crumpets? <laughs> Crumpets? Catch the beat. We're talking about slow hip-hop. That sounds really good when you're sipping on some scissor. Don't run with scissors. <laughs> it, it, do you have anything that you want to contribute to this BPM, or, or you want to you want to do uh, uh, something that you've been working on or listening to lately? Um, you know, Josh, I hate to come off like I'm living in the past, but <laughs> I love it. We uh, we need this education. I mean, this is why we're doing the radio show, and this is why I asked you to come. I and mean, you could play, you could play the new Britney Spears album if you want. I would love to talk about that also. But I mean. <laughs> I have it. We could go track for track after this. <laughs> no, you know, I hate to admit, it, you know, I hate to live in the past, but at the same time, I, some of this stuff needs to be heard, right? Yeah. So, um, now that we're in the lovely down tempo mood, um, this is another buried treasure called "Feel It" by Adante. Check it out. Be
Dynell's newest track, Daddy, as we affectionately refer to him in Nightlife. Uh, it's called Bring It. That was the new school mix with uh, Shade Pendarvis and Paul Alexander. Sort of as our transition from slow tempo to whatever tempo. Austin certainly isn't required to play something at house BPM, but uh. We're trying to move into the more contemporary stuff. Uh, and I don't know if you have any stories old or new about Johnny Dinell you wanted to share with us. Uh, nothing I could share on a family program. <laughs> That's what Sammy Joe said. Johnny really has like this sordid past. Well, uh, you know, he's, I mean, the man is a legend. I give him like super gigantic, galicious, mad props. And I'm so glad he has a, a label now, Endless Night Records. Look at me, I'm plugging plugging his label and um, he can only do great things with it so I can't wait to hear more of his stuff and uh, actually that track it put me in mind of something contemporary that I'm liking so people don't think I walk around with a, with a cane and a walker um, not that there's anything wrong with that no there isn't anything wrong with that Sammy Joe last week said when he goes home he doesn't listen to anything he just wants to hear silence which I could completely relate to after DJing three or four nights in a row you don't really want to go and Club out at home to fucking Fetty Legrand or whatever it is you're listening to. Uh, <laughs> what is it that you listen to the most? And, and DJ Will, a good friend of both of ours, my favorite quote from his radio show here was when he said, I listen to the Carpenters at least once a day. Uh, and <laughs> it was uh, such a cute image of him in his room with that Karen Carpenter record on the turn. Oh, my goodness. Uh, truth be to I, yeah, I know. No, I can't. It's just that image is burned in my brain now. Yeah. And it just seems natural, too. Yeah. Um, truth be told, uh, Josh, most of the time, I don't want to hear nothing. Yeah. I mean, nothing. Like, I, 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 I watch the news. And it's real, that's really infuriating. But <laughs> anyway, um, at home, oh, and you know, anything from, I mean, the Beatles, I live. I mean, I live. The later Beatles, not the mopped up Beatles. What's your favorite album? Abbey Road. Hands down. I, to be honest, growing up, my parents are huge Rolling Stones fans. I know it's not an either-or situation, and your old roommate Lena and I bond once a year, if not more, over Led Zeppelin. It doesn't have to be an either-or situation, but in my household, my parents loved Beatles, and we listened to a lot of Sgt. Pepper and the White Album. I mean, it's not the most like family-friendly album, but um, it, uh, it, to me, it always was sort of an either-or situation, Rolling Stones or Beatles. Uh, and so I always sort of tended more toward the Rolling Stones. I feel like I'm going to get hate mail for saying this on any type of public broadcast podcast thing, but I, I appreciate the Beatles, and I and I know they've done amazing things. I just always was more of a Rolling Stones fan. No, no, there's really, I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. You know what? It, it When it is either or, it's really not a choice. I mean, people just naturally gravitate. There's nothing you can do about it. There's nothing I could say to, to bring you back over to, <laughs> to my side. And no, you shouldn't get hate mail, because the Stones are, I mean, the Stones are just beyond the beyond you know, a outrageous. But yeah, my, my mine was like a Beatles household. And I mean, I was probably, I mean, I was born pretty much when Abbey Road came out. 
And that was the first album that my mother really played for me and I really listened to. I mean, I just, I don't know life without it. And um, I just, I live, you know, I, I live for their stuff. That, I mean, I'll listen to The Clash. I'll listen to, a, you know, dis I mean, you know, a anything. I mean, I, 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 don't, I don't really care for labels uh, on a lot of things. Labels are great to just describe or reference a period or a sound because you need words to describe that sound. But, you know, I hate to classify stuff. But, um, I mean, the, the high school new wave, you know, everything. Um, Led Zeppelin, when I'm feeling that way. Sure, Pink Floyd, love. I just live. Because that's a journey, too. You put on one of their albums, and that's a journey. Just like House is a journey. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I like it all. Um, if you had a CD player, which I guess would nowadays be an MP3 player, what would be in it right now before coming to the studio to do the radio show? What would be in it right now? Um, Not figuratively, literally, like on your iPod. <laughs> what, what was on it before you got here? Um, the Clash. This is Radio Clash. Sweet Love by Anita Baker. Um, shattered by the Rolling Stones, which I live, live speaking of the Stones. Um, just about anything by the Beatles. Um, some of that down-tempo house that we were listening to, particularly some of Frankie Knuckles' stuff, like uh, the slow stuff like Lisa's, like a Change by Lisa Stansfield, or a Not, Not Gonna Change by Swing Out Sister, which are two very complimentary records. Um, Swing Out Sister was the first... Many people have first albums that they bought. I was of the CD generation. The first anything that I bought was Swing Out Sister CD. That was the first piece of music I ever owned. Oh, that's so nice. See, everybody remembers their first record, right? That's so cool. Um, yeah, but most people could say, oh, it was Beat It, or it was, you know, I guess like younger people would say, oh, it was, you know, that first Britney Spears album really changed my life. Uh, Swing Out Sister is a bit offbeat for a six or seven or eight year old to be buying. But that was it, that's what I bought. Uh, yeah, that is a bit offbeat, but that just shows who you are, right? I mean, my mother should have, when I was nine years old and I made her buy me the 12 inch of Hot Stuff and Bad Girls, <laughs> I think my mother should have gotten a clue at that point. But that's who we were. Yeah. That's awesome. No, I mean, <laughs> then I was listening to glorious stuff on Miami Sound Machine, things like that, Huey Lewis in the News. Yeah, this is all Columbia House. I talked about this on another show also, but. Columbia House was really how I got my music living in the suburbs, having cassettes and, you know, a few CDs here and there. It was listening to the radio and then being like, well, I really want that whole Huey Lewis album. Um, can I just tell you that you recently, you and Will at, at your Good Times party recently did the AM radio uh, uh, edition. And that was like, I mean, that was one of the best parties I've been to all year, if not. I mean, because that music, I could sit and listen to Sticks and Toto and everything you guys were, Kenny Loggins, I was gagging. I was like, this is fierce. I, I want to do this again. I want to do it again also. I, I did Will and Sean, the, the two guys who do Spank, they did it together because I was out of town and I asked them to cover for me so I didn't even get to hear it. Correction, it was Will and Sean. Sorry, Sean. That's okay. That's okay. I, I will do it again. I hope I get to hear it. I was gagging so much that I forget who was playing. I don't even <laughs> well, I have to say, Rich King, our friend who does the snacks party, is doing a, he, he did something similar. It was called Cool Dad. And it was supposed to be like a, what a cool dad would listen to like in the 80s and 90s. And it, it wasn't Journey. It wasn't like your sort of like cheesy Murray. Yeah, it was, it was cool music. I can't even tell you exactly what he played, but we're doing it again uh, June 22nd. So that'll be fun.
That's wonderful. Oh, cool. So like the stuff if you had a cool dad, what they would listen to, right? Yeah. Oh, Rich is another one. Uh, tremendous person and tremendous talent. Uh, I just I, I love that man to death. And uh, I will come to the next. Did I miss this cool dad? I do not remember details of many attendees at my nightlife events, but could have been there. Could have been there in spirit. Uh, yeah, I was there in spirit. I don't think. I have a cool dad, so I guess I could relate. But um, no, I, I don't think I was there. At least I don't recall. We're gonna we're gonna go to a song. We're gonna go to a song. Uh, but y feel free, play anything.
up from falling down Always know it in your heart, baby That I'm here to stay If night was day and day was night If light was dark and dark was light Always know it in your heart, baby That I'm here to stay, yeah Get a ticket 
Dad Rock. That was Rich King's contribution to my uh, 
rock and roll set. That's that was Jukebox Hero by Foreigner. And during that song, I broke out the 1997 issue of HX from when Austin was a contributing editor and writer and wrote a feature. Uh, I found a box on the street last week uh, with my friend Michael of all old Next magazines and this one HX issue. This is just blowing my mind. I never would have remembered this, Josh, if you hadn't found these issues somewhere. <laughs> Hold up. March 22nd, 1996, HX Black Party issue, in which we, you know, we, we actually took pride in, you know, covering things that, you know, topical things that were going on around town, you know, not just who's shaking what and, you know, who's got a club and who blah, blah, blah. So look at this. New York has always been a city of sleaze. <laughs> This is Austin's feature. <laughs> uh, this was about, at the time, they had not yet zoned out of existence some of these sex places that now, you know, you have to be 100 feet away from this and 500 feet away from that and 2,000 centimeters away from this. So it, th all those laws were in the works, you know. Despite Mayor Giuliani's war on sex, the Big Apple still absorbs, ooh, that sounds messy, $30 million in legitimate annual revenue from its thriving sex industry. Yes, they did take in revenue, and yes, they did pay taxes. So, come on. Even if the city council's new zoning laws forced the theaters and video stores to cloister themselves away somewhere in the Bronx, nothing against the Bronx. Nothing wrong with that. No, in our Bronx. Perverts from all over the world will still find a way to get their fix. And it just goes on from there. I, I, I cannot wait to read this, actually, because <laughs> it's, you know, we used to like doing things that were not, would, you know, take you out of the club and into what was happening around us at the time in a way that we could relate to. Yeah. And so the sex industry was something that we certainly could relate to. Was the reception of HX Magazine and later Next Magazine different in the pre-internet era in the gay community? Oh, my God. Yes. I, I mean, it was, it was, it was... It would come out on a Friday, and people would just eat it up. I mean, by Saturday, Sunday morning, there were no issues left. And we, we took our jobs very seriously, actually, because of that. I mean, we didn't, you know, nobody had a, a crystal ball that you could see the Internet coming. We had no idea. But just because of the fact that we were that generation's weekly publication, we took it very seriously. You know what I mean? Like, we really um, made a point of covering all different aspects of the community. Um, and yes, we were a bar rag, but we were also very topical. And we covered, you know, all the different little sub-scenes within the gay scene because we felt the responsibility. There was no internet, you know what I mean? So uh, there was a whole section of very accurate listings for social groups that met and people who didn't go to the club. And we felt it was our duty to keep that accurate and up-to-date every week, and people loved it. Was the prestige of being the staff, staff writer, staff editor for HX, equal to or greater than the prestige of being a downtown DJ at the time? Um, it was it was pretty, you know, comparable. And but most people, you know, it was it was comparable, yeah. But it will all depend on what you did with it. You know what I mean? You would try to just do positive things with it and you know, and um, cut when people were making an effort to throw a party or put out music, you would try to support it. You know what I mean? And and that's that's how we kind of kept our end of the bargain you know, by being very open to, you know, just we wanted to help the community. I know it sounds crazy. Yes, it was a for-profit business, but we, you know, we got into and the charity work. We always supported and things like that. So, um, yeah, the prestige was great. I mean, you'd get in <laughs> anywhere. But it wasn't really a, b I mean, 
it was a it was a benefit of the job. It wasn't the point of, of your existence. And so, you know, if you did take advantage of the courtesy that clubs would afford you, you had you you know, we were supposed to give it back by either supporting what they do, you know, giving them coverage. So it was it was really great. It was nice. It does come full circle because I didn't tell you, but I actually I used to be an editor at a magazine, Pause Magazine. I used to be the, yeah, I was a news editor there, uh, and then writer and contributing writer after I stopped being an editor there, and now continue to write for Next Magazine's blog. And so this weekend I went to see Linda Simpson's play on Friday, The Emperor's New Cod Piece, giving her a plug here on the show, because it's running for another five um, Friday nights. Uh, and so I got to go and see that and write it up, and I get you know little money for going up there. Uh, I got to sit with Lady Bunny also at the same table. And then last night I also covered the snacks party that Rich King and Gustavo um, moved now to the Monster. Uh, they're doing that on a monthly basis with some extra parties for Gay Pride and summer snacks out on Fire Island. But yeah, I mean, you know, you go, you go, you go to these venues and, you know, I, I, I know a lot of people that are working these events anyway. Chip Duckett and um, Eric were at the door respectively. But uh it's nice. It's nice to cover your friends and, you know, be somewhat objective, you know, but you're also just sort of giving them a little plug and a little exposure that they wouldn't get normally, and you get maybe free entry out of it, some money toward drinks. Well, look, you know, if we don't support each other, then who will? You know, who will? Uh, that's really it. What else can we say? We're going to go back. Uh, Austin is going to move into a rock and roll rock and roll moment. He had, he had actually wanted to open the show with Shattered before I um sidetracked him with house music <laughs> which always <laughs> seems to happen but we're going to try to get a rock and roll bah, rock and roll moment out of him Josh has got me in a rock and roll mood now and I just couldn't wait to play this song by the Rolling Stones because to me it captures the magical mess that was New York City you know at the time that it was written and recorded <laughs>
We are back. That was my Patti Smith selection, Rock and Roll Nigger. That was preceded by Rolling Stone's Shattered, which I didn't actually know was written about New York City. Austin encouraged me to pull up the lyrics, and we read along as Mick Jagger sang along. Oh, yeah. I, I love when you read the lyrics. It's like you get that song even more because it's, you know, they were kind of, had like many British artists, had adopted... New York City at the time, like very late 70s, 78, 79, 1980. So, you know, between them and, and Bowie and everybody living here, uh, you just got some incredible music because of that combination. You know, I hate to analyze it too much, but it was an, an amazing snapshot of, of this town at that time. Did you have any stories in your time out and about in New York of run-ins with these people? You, you were just saying during those two songs that Bowie was up there for you. Uh, and I know... Uh, I've talked to Big Scott, who works at the world, about celebrities that have come in and he's, you know, run into. Do you have any stories like that to share? This is this is the, the this is the question I ask every guest on Twerking Radio. Um, oddly enough, no, you know, it's funny. Like in the cl- as far as I could always remember, yeah, they would come to the clubs, but nobody would, you wouldn't notice, you know, maybe or somebody would notice, but they would kind of tell their friends, but not really say anything. And my celebrity run-ins in New York City have always been in the most mundane, like, supermarket type of places. Like Debbie Harry at the Gristidis used to be on 6th Avenue. I, I, I literally ran into her with my shopping cart, her cart. And, I mean, who would have thought, right? <sighs> who else? Speaking of the Stones, once when I was in college, I won't say NYU because I still haven't paid them. Um, that was Austin Downey with no E. That's why you changed your name to escape all these bills and bill collectors? Yes, that's why I changed it from Wiener to Downey, because Cousin Anthony embarrassed us, and I, you know, when I was playing in back rooms, and, uh, and NYU's after me. Anyway, can we scramble this broadcast? <laughs> <laughs> oh, anyway, so I'm walking down Broadway in the NYU vicinity, and it's environs, and here comes Keith Richards. That man looked like a homeless bag lady. <laughs> I mean, a bag lady. He looked like the, the, the character in Gypsy Woman. I mean, he had everything but the shopping cart. Yeah. If he had had Debbie Harry's shopping cart, I, I would have called Homeless Services to help this man because he was ta- literally talking to himself. And I couldn't help but walk along next to him. And he, if I had stared away, he had no idea. Fierce. And here he is all these years later. And I, my back hurts and he's still out playing guitar. But I have to say, before you were playing a house track, you sort of just, you know, r- rambled off a, a line that, yeah, I was on the phone with Frankie Knuckles the other day. I mean, you have to realize, to DJs and house heads, this is a celebrity also. I suppose to you, this is just a good friend of yours. But at some point, Frankie Knuckles must have registered, hey, yeah, I'm good friends with Frankie Knuckles. Well, you know, it's an odd thing because he went from being an idol, he was my idol to uh, a friend, you know what I mean? And that's that's always kind of odd, but he's a wonderful person, so you know you can make that transition very smoothly. Um, we just met professionally, like when I was writing for HX, and we would interview him, and um, you know, sure, because he had so, m- I mean, he had so many groundbreaking singles. I mean, this was like, what he was one of the people who really opened our eyes to what dance music could be. And so, you know, we covered him professionally at, at the magazine, and then we just kind of, started talking and started to click. He is as wonderful a person inside as his music suggests. You know what I mean? And it is a little bit weird to uh, become friends with somebody you idolize, but um, he made it easy. 
Do you want to play a Frankie Knuckles track now? Okay, I'm going to play another Buried Treasure. This one remixed by Frankie Knuckles back in the day. Um, rather unknown, even for him, for his stuff. Um, if you're looking for new Frankie Knuckles, buy his new single, I'll Take You There. It's incredible. It's house. It's beautiful. Just buy it. But this is one you don't hear too often. Sabrina Johnson, a notable house vocalist, and the song is called Friendship.
We are back. Frankie Knuckles. We're sitting here talking about Frankie Knuckles. Uh, and looking at the clock, and somehow time has flown by us. So uh, Austin hasn't even gotten a chance to... What is this? <laughs> we could sit here and do this seriously for another two hours. Um, yeah, next time. Indeed. Time flies when you're having fun. It is fun. I'm really enjoying it. Uh, and of course, we'll do this again. Uh, but we didn't really get to talk about your production background and the remixes, how you got into production uh, and what you're working on now, which is how we're going to wrap the show. Well, you know, it's something that I've always wanted to do. I mean, a lot of DJs kind of think, you know, start getting to the point where they start thinking, uh, okay, what if I could make my own music to either just to play or for other people to play? That is the point that I am at, and I'm finding it difficult. Well, it's like everything else difficult, but since you have the natural, you know, you have musical talent and ability, so you'll just practice, you'll, you know what I mean? I couldn't even tell you what happened. I just, um, I started expressing an interest in it, and oddly enough, it was Sean B. as his alias, Best Mate. You know, he has that lovely, like, dis funky disco outfit. Uh, Best Mate, which appears from time to time on the scene. And sometimes it's recorded, you know, tracks, and sometimes it's a live act. It's kind of fierce because of that. He asked me to if I would want to try remixing uh, this track that they did last year called Situation Go Bang. And I did it. And they put it out on Bagpack. Music, which is a wonderful local, um, locally operated digital label that really uh, helps you know young uh, and or un unsigned artists um, get get exposure. They're, they're awesome. So anyway, that came out, and then I kind of started just putting my feelers out there. I did a song called "Worlds o uh, Worlds Away" by Aiden Leslie, who was a singer that I had known for some time, like since the old Twilo days, and that actually did very well uh, too. It um, there was a number of remixes. They they all did well. Um, for my part, I think, you know, my vocal mix and my dub went, it did well on track source. I know that it for a time was his top selling like under his, uh, category. If you go to iTunes, I was like at number one for his artist catalog and for a couple of other things that I did, um, bring the fire by Barbara Cherie, who oddly enough was in last year. She was, I believe one of billboards top R and B artists. And she was just kind of like um, breaking out into dance music, and a friend of mine asked me to try that. So it's ki it's it kind of like DJing in a way. It's you know once you start one kind of one gig kind of leads to the next, and you talk to somebody. Oh, you, oh, you want to try this song? Or you hear of s people that you know recording songs and whatnot. So from there, I've also did um, um, Josh. You had mentioned Desi before, and you know he's one half of that fabulous duo. Escandalo. So uh, Will asked me to do Nocturning, which is coming out, coming coming soon to a theater near you. So that was another project. And like it just kind of goes from there. Uh, do you feel, you're saying in between songs also, sort of after 2000, 2001, you took time off from DJing. You sort of left that scene and sort of started doing this other job you're doing at 311. Do you feel now that you're sort of having a, return to doing music? I mean, I know you started DJing the snacks parties, uh, you're doing this radio show. I mean, do you see more musical endeavors in your future? Um, at the time, around 2001, I mean, let's, uh, I'll be honest, I, I was really burnt out and kind of just, you know, I had, had some disappointments in the business. A lot of successes, but a lot of disappointments uh, personally as well. And I was burnt out and self-medicating, <laughs> let's put it that way. 
and uh, I think it was time to kind of like get out of the scene for a while for me personally. And you know, I had this funny habit. I, I like to eat. <laughs> you know, I like to eat and pay my rent. So I got into um, I got in the, the ground floor of of this uh, three one one operation, which really is fabulous. I mean, um, they took somebody with no particular experience in their field, uh, and city employment does this uh, a lot. Uh, if you have just a certain, you know, if you meet certain educational requirements or certain other, in my case, they wanted, um, if you didn't, if you never worked in a call center, they wanted public relations experience, which they took as my magazine experience. So, they, you know, they were looking for people who, to develop people who could reach out and help, and help the public. And so it was a great opportunity, and, and I love it, and I, I, I'm trying to exist in this perfect world where I have both. And so far it's working because I, I'm like, I'm really, really happy to be back on this scene with the help of my friends, you know, and you all know who you are. And, and um, but I, 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 not, I don't quite want to do it full time. I don't know where, I'm at this, I'm at a happy medium right now. And the uh, remixing songs and producing seems to um, fit perfectly because I could do it, uh, you know, at home by myself. And it kind of speaks to the introvert <laughs> in me, you know, to sit home and make music. So I'm really enjoying it. And as far as DJing goes, I really enjoy being a guest here and there. Um, that's been great. And wherever it goes, it goes. You know, we'll see. So what production of yours are you going to play for us? Close out the show. Ah, well, I think, just for fun, I'll play something that, oh, by the way, if you want to hear some of my stuff, you can go to soundcloud.com slash Downey. I will play for you something that is actually not coming out, uh, just for kicks. The artist is Ericature Aviance, legendary fixture on the New York scene. Love Ericature Aviance. Hate saying the name because it can be a tongue twister, but absolutely love her to death. And her EP, which came out, Work Erica, came out a year ago. And uh, as Austin was saying, it's great to support friends. And it's even more fun to support friends when you really believe in the work they're doing. Erica is unbelievable, and her EP fucking turns me out. I might even play one of the regular songs off the EP. It's only five songs, and they're all unbelievable. She performed one of them at my birthday, which was a month ago in May. Uh, she's performed probably three or four of them at my party now. Uh, I can't wait to hear her new stuff, but I know Will and Sean are doing a remix. Nita did a remix, uh, I think with Michael Magnin, and Austin did one also. Um, Nita actually is putting together a new EP of remixes uh, of some of her existing stuff and, and new stuff. And so uh, my contribution to that EP will be a song, a dub of a song called, because, you know, we love dubs. Yeah. <laughs> it's all dub. Austin Dubney. <laughs> Austin Dubney. Uh, it's all dubs all the time. A dub of a song called Fast Chick, which is fierce. But since I kind of played around with her uh, existing song, My Pumps, um, and that one's not going to be on the EP, so this is like, you know, extra special bootleg uh, when you play it. World premiere, closing out the show. Thanks for listening. Thanks for coming by, Austin. And that's it. Here you go.
Missing green is not your color, so stop sipping on that haterade. Drag my ass over to that mirror, time to beat that face. Just one look and I'm inspired by that leather and that lace. Some paint, some powder brushes, and a little time. I look so soft and sweet and sassy, it just ought to be a crime. My pump hit me out the door, my pump hit the street. My pumps got me working to a turned out curtsy beat. In my pumps, I'm feeling sexy. In my pumps, I'm feeling high. The world's looking mighty rosy as I twirl and prance on by. Blues. You can't bring me down 